With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Podcast ain't played nobody. Peisman Trophy Special. Coming to you live and in living color from Culver Stockton College in Missouri. We are with Andrew Rupsich, esteemed uh, award winner of the Peisman Trophy winner. I've got Andrew with me. We'll call him Roop. And I also have Ryan Nanny at Celebrity Hot Tub on Twitter. Banner Society Zone. We are podcast ain't played nobody. Part of the Banner Society Network. Roop, congratulations, first and foremost, on uh, being the 2019 winner of the Peisman Trophy. Thank you, guys. It was an awesome experience. Cool, man. Um, with Ryan, uh, we flew into St. Louis. Yeah, or I flew into St. Louis yesterday, drove out here uh, today. We're going to hang out with Roop a little bit um, and and talk about the play that won him the award. If you haven't seen it, um, it'll be on my Twitter, at RJ underscore rights. It's on the Peisman Trophy Twitter, Banner Society Twitter. Um, basically, Roop takes, a, I guess, a throwback screen and throws it, what, roughly 50 yards? Yeah, it, was, it came out to like 47 yards, I believe. One pass, 47 yards, so not too bad. So if, the, uh, if your stat line forever reads one of one, 47 yards. You cool with that? Uh, I wanted to do it again, but I'm cool with that, to be honest. My passer rating is like 1,039 right now. That's what I like to hear. Um, Okay, so I guess take us through the play um, and and how you guys implemented it. How many times did you – first of all, what's it called? Oh, it's called Gut. Okay. Um, Good name. It's it's called Gut because I always, during like practices before games, I always pull my shirt up. So it's always (laughs) just my gut hanging out. They call it Belly Boy sometimes. But – yeah, that's how that's how they got named. So it's called gut. It's a uh, shotgun formation, um, and you are at left tackle. I'm trying to kind of paint the picture. We always say podcasting is a visual medium on our yeah. show. Um, so you're at left tackle. You feign a block, and then you kind of get, I guess, perpendicular to the quarterback, receive the pass, and then throw it deep to a wide receiver on the left side, um, down the left sideline, near the end zone. Not actually a touchdown, yeah. but you do you do end I'm up scoring. It. it looks like a touchdown to me. Exactly. You know? That's fine. That's fine with me. At first I did. I was running down the sideline, like, celebrating, like, the um, – when Pat McAfee runs down the sideline, yeah, flailing yeah. his arms, I was doing that. <laughs> you can see it from a different angle. But, yeah, because we have a play – where it's like a sprint out. It's basically the same sprint out formation and everything just releases out after that. I was going to ask you, so like, so you guys set this play up throughout the game, throughout the season? Yeah, we well, we it's through our sprint out, sprint out protection. We have a lot of stuff where that's that trip formation, trip, and then the one, um, the one on the left side where we just have a whole sprint out. The back side is kind of like a uh, waterfall technique. And then once I got back far enough, it was just like a turnaround. So you are typically you are typically releasing to block at like the second level. No, no, it's, it's just a straight waterfall back to the quarterback, just protecting his backside. Got it, like normal. So got it. So how did you guys? Uh, how were you kind of pining for this? Like, how, what was the implementation of gut? Um, is this something that had been in the playbook from like training camp, or like how did that work? Um, so the way it worked out freshman year. I'm guessing it was like a way to uh, kind of make me happy freshman year. <laughs> uh, when I came in, it was a play, same tech, technique, same everything. And what it was was a uh, just a 
pass back, and then it was a, the guard came out just like it was, but it was a run play strictly. I guess they didn't trust me enough to throw it yet. <laughs> so but, you so you would do that, water, and ex- explain waterfall technique really quick just for our audience. Uh, it's essentially just like you're taking a couple steps in, you're backpedaling towards the direction of the quarterback, just like taking up whatever anybody's coming that from that way. Got it. And so you usually this would be a run play? Usually this is a pass play. So the Corbin, the quarterback would sprint out. There's usually uh, some different combo going on with the receivers. And if he can't, if he can't uh, pass it, he just runs the ball out Got of bounds. Technically. Got it. And so when you came in, you said they they started kind of installing this as a freshman for you. Yeah. Um, to kind of get you kind of on the outside, get you some burn. Um, at what point did they say we trust you to actually receive the pass and throw it? So last year it was. Last the last single game last year against Graceland University, it was implemented like the day before the game. It was like that Friday, and it was like, all right, well, we're gonna have something just in case we get up a lot or we just need a big play, and we're gonna have some fun with it. It was the same exact people, Connor, uh, but it was Connor Perrine. He wasn't at that game, so instead we changed it to Brody Hassel. But we didn't end up running that game because it was a lot closer than we predicted it to be. But they were talking about how they contemplated it through the whole. We had a fourth quarter comeback drive where we scored with like 30 seconds left to win and they were like we contemplated it the whole drive so trying to do it yeah they they (laughs) trust enough in that whole drive to maybe think about doing it so do you have how much quarterback do you have in your background (laughs) none I've uh, I was thinking about it yesterday actually I've thrown the ball one time in a game otherwise it was my sophomore year I was the kicker so I was the kicker, and it was like a bad snap, and I just threw it in that zone, and it ended up just getting tipped. So it was like <laughs> I have one one pass under my belt in high school and one pass in college. So In college. So, okay, let's talk about game situation here. You guys are up a ton in no. when, you got, when you actually ran it? Uh, during this game, yeah. we were down, actually. We were down 20, I think it was 20 to 0. And it was kind of one of those things we got, we'd get past the 50 yard line about every drive, and then we'd always stall out. So they were like, all right, well, at halftime, we came in, and he was like, well, if we get past the 50, be ready to run this play because we need something to get those last yardage. So that's cool, man. Uh, do you remember down and distance? Uh, I think it was, I think we just had like a 20 yard gain. It was like a first down, it was a first and 10 play. So. Get him down. Strike while the iron's hot. <laughs> yeah. No, I dig this. I uh, I really dig this. So you had besides like a Friday walkthrough, you guys never rep this. Um, this that week that week the that week we leading ran up it, to this game. Yeah, we ran it every single day. Okay. Um, none of them came out as beautiful as that, but they always <laughs> they always ended up working uh, essentially the way. But the ball was never that perfect. Yeah. That uh, like it is, and I'm not even just saying this because we're standing here, like. It's a really good ball. <laughs> like, you set your feet, you hit him in stride, like, he ran, the receiver runs right under it and almost scores. Like, it's a really, really good ball. And that's yeah. why I'm like, had you, like, played quarterback in the past? Like, I, like, <laughs> yeah. Well, it my, really looks like you know what you, you know exactly what you're doing. Yeah, my room, well, I have my other roommates, the backup quarterback. He keeps saying to all of us and, like, all of our parents and stuff, he goes, oh, I taught him all the time. <laughs> Were there so, any tips in the dorm room? Were there any? Not not really at all. It was just, like, one of those go out there and huck it. Hope That's, for the best. See, so, look, everybody who says skill players are non-linemen are ridiculous. Like, we have a really, really good big skill player right here in my man, Root. There you go. <laughs> so, when you uncork this ball, can you tell – when it leaves your hand, like, yeah, I really nailed it? Or are you well, just like, I hope? Well, at first, when I first threw it, well, the point of the play was I was supposed to run up a little bit mm-hmm. before, and I looked up, and I saw Brody was wide open. 
And I was just like, all right, I'm going to hug this it's thing time. as far as I can. <laughs> right. And he, they were like, only throw it if he's completely open. The, the defender was a couple yards in front of him. I'm like, all right, this thing's going. I threw it as hard as I could, and it just, I was like, oh. I, at first, when I first released it, I thought it was overthrown. Yeah. And I, I was like, oh, shoot, I messed up my chance. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, Brody caught it. I was like, this is insane. Like, it was crazy to, that it actually got there. Were you, if he was not open, would you just eat it and run and try to run? If he wasn't complete, like, if, it, if he was any more covered, like, if, uh, DB was like on him. I was not gonna throw it. I was not gonna hear it from my offensive coaching staff. They already told me a bunch of times. They're like, if he's not completely open, you're not allowed to throw it. Um, so I think the the funniest thing about this play is like the defense is obviously caught off guard, but like before you let it go, you're surrounded by like four like four defenders yeah, and, and they kind of are like, they don't really rush you. They don't put any pressure on you. <laughs> so you kind of have enough time to like set and throw. Were you yeah. surprised at how kind of, you had kind of like a pocket going on here, even though you're it, on an Island by yourself. Yeah. When I, well, we ran at the, when we ran at the very first time, there wasn't like that much pocket. Like when we ran it because of the guard was kind of late. And when Durham got there and created that little bit of pocket to take a the, the there's a wide receiver who helps them uh, kind of blocks for, Rick. yeah, he takes that first one. And then the left guard comes over with me and creates that little bit of like space where he takes up that first guy. And I was just baffled that none of them were just, like, sprinting at me, just trying to take out my knees like they usually would. <laughs> uh, so you so you guys do score on the next play. The next play? Yes. Okay. We uh, ran inside zone, yeah. You just ran inside zone? Yeah, we ran inside zone. I came right up the uh, backside B gap, yeah. That is crazy. So what, how much time – did you really have time to, like – kind of celebrate this or anything like that or was it we got to get on the ball because we want to strike while they are inside it oh plunge it in we i like actually had a lot of time like think about it like i ran down the field while celebrating like thinking it scored thinking it scored i'm flailing i'm going to celebrating with brody thinking he scored and he's just they're like let's line up we gotta go i'm like (laughs) i'm out of breath now like give me a second here so um, when did you first like find out that th- that the Pisman was a thing and that this was going to be like potentially a thing that could you know go beyond just this game and this moment and become a more like nationally known thing? It was um, so right away after the game, I was talking to Coach Sal and he goes, he didn't say he didn't bring a Pisman award. Right. He didn't bring, he's like Brody cost you a big trophy and a trip. And I was like, I was like, oh, it's not a big deal. I don't really care. And then it came to the off season where I was talking to Coach Sally about like the All American stuff and All Conference stuff, and he was like, "Do we sent your thing into the Pisman Award? It's going to start tomorrow." And actually, like right before that, because I was kind of confused when I was talking to Mr. Atwell, our athletic director. He was like, "Congrats on the Pisman starting up," and I was like, "What does this guy mean? <laughs> Is he just saying I've eaten a bunch of pie or something like that?" But then when my head coach told me, I was kind of like, wow, this is this is happening. So it's cool, man. I um, yeah. We, again, we should recognize it. NAI All-American like my guy, my guy here. He's got some bona fides. Like, yeah. My, my guy can ball a little bit. Um, and, I, you know, you know, I think what you want your future to be uh, mm-hmm. after you're done playing. You want to coach, um, I guess, kind of tell me about what you kind of want your coaching future to be, because it was kind of interesting talking to you about that. Um, so what I want to do is after football's over, I want to be a GA somewhere, want to go to like a bigger D1 school and get that opportunity to get coaching experience while earning my, the rest of my degree. 
and then from there just trying to build up in the ranks try to get to like an offensive coordinator eventually try to get to like a head coaching position I feel like I have like a lot of attributes that those people have and that I could I have the perseverance and drive to like get to that point yeah down in my life yeah let's talk about um let's talk about a little o-line play just a little bit here and there for you um would you rather zone blocking or gap blocking uh, zone blocking. We do a lot of zone blocking. I love it a lot more because especially when the, the sometimes in our conference we have a lot of defensive ends that play four eyes, rock out, the linebacker comes to the B gap when we're running ice, uh, inside zone to the right. And just eat, those dudes get eaten up so easily yeah. sometimes and it turns into a pancake across the whole line sometimes. Some of my my roommate doesn't like it too much. My roommate summer, I pancake a lot of dudes into his knees, <laughs> and he does not enjoy that. So. Basically, what what Rupe is talking about is, especially if it's a zone to the right, and and Rupe is on the left side, um, you know, he would have a defensive lineman over him that when he says rock out, kind of go. I guess the opposite way of where the run is coming and a linebacker would come down. So Roop is taking a play side step on, on a zone. And if it's zone to the right, Roop takes a play side step, goes towards the right. And if there's a linebacker coming down, Roop is a lot bigger than a linebacker. I can <laughs> promise you because I'm sitting across from him right now. And so that's what he's talking about when he talks about getting a pancake on a zone block. So my guy is, is a zone blocking aficionado. I like to hear that. Um, I, I guess, are you, when you in the future, when you kind of get your own offense and, and you are able to kind of design your own scheme, uh, how important is it to you to establish the run? Oh, I I think about it here all the time. We're an air red offense here. so that Oh, we, we, we they're pass, misusing you, man. We, we pass the ball a lot, but a lot of it's the inside zone reads and yeah. stuff like that. But uh, we had our, our offense like Coach Freshman, that was his biggest emphasis, and I was like, I like running this way. We I came from a wing tee. In okay. high school, so we power, trap, inside zone, outside zone, stuff like that, and that was always the funnest thing. And that's going to be, if I ever come to that position, that's going to be the biggest thing because that's going to open up the pass game. That's going to open play action, stuff like that. It's going to get open up a lot of stuff. What do you want when you start coaching? Like, What are you most interested to learn? Like, What do you feel like your blind spots are about what you know and what you want to know about the game of football? My biggest things I want to observe is would probably be more of the schemes of like the back like the dbs and stuff like that how those fits come in because i understand like i understand linebacker fits i understand like d-line fits but i don't understand when like the safety and stuff that kind of confuses me at the time that'd be like the biggest thing i think i'd want to like fully learn about basically what Rupe is talking about is like he as an offensive lineman you kind of understand defensive line run fits and linebacker run fits because those are the guys who are typically in the box who are typically blocking but when a DB comes down that kind of stuff that's kind of what he's talking about to kind of explain it a little bit to our audience um this is cool man it is I, I I personally love the Peisman Trophy for the reasons of like we can sit here and glorify and and celebrate offensive linemen um i was an offensive lineman in high school who was nowhere near as good as you um and so i i really love getting offensive linemen some some burn and some run um publicly and it's really cool that we have this award that can celebrate the sport in this very very fun way um because this is this is a really cool play and and i really think that you should be really proud of this yeah um what you guys were able to pull off man i uh are you going to hopefully design some plays like gut in your future offense? Uh, I don't think it's completely out again. So because we we tried running it one more time, didn't work out as well as it did because of the uh, the DB. It was like two games later, and the DBs covered the receiver the whole uh, time, okay. so it didn't get to happen. So I ended up running the ball, but I'm 
thinking by the time next year rolls around, everyone's going to forget about it. It's going to happen <laughs> again. So I just think it's great that the secondary respects your talent. Exactly. Yeah. This one. Well, like I had for like three or four games after that, like the the at the time when the uh, play was blown up, we were traveling and we were actually in the locker room and when like uh, bar stool and like Sunday night football tweet were like tweeting about it and. We get in the game. They're like, "Be careful, he's gonna pass," and like stuff like that. And they were like, "Stopping just to talk about that." Uh, and then like the respect from like the quarterbacks from Benedictine, the team we were playing. He was like, "You do the best ball game." Like the, the like opposing that. team's the, quarterback. Yeah, the opposing team's quarterback. Did, so, hey, game recognized game. Yeah. How many? The, the time when you ran it, how many yards did you gain? Uh, that second time, three yards. But yeah. you, did you break anybody? Did you put a oh, move on somebody? So kind of what happened was uh, the, the left guard came out the same way he did and ended up running. I kind of forgot to tell him he's got to go because like, the keyword to uh, like if it didn't work out was to go. And he was sitting there just playing around. I side I sidestepped one kid and then got my knees taken out right okay. after that. <laughs> Would you put a little move on somebody? <laughs> Yeah, uh, I got to the side. I didn't realize it until, like, because I sidestepped them and got, got, like, two or three more yards. And I get off to the sideline, and all the dudes are talking about it. I'm like, what are you talking about? <laughs> until I re- watched the film and realized what happened. For you, uh, kind of in this whole process, and I guess we gave the award out in, in December. Like, as all of this is coming, like, what's kind of the, the wildest, like, thing that's happened to you? Like, you said something like football tweeted about it. Like, yeah. we, we gave you this award. Like, between I it's got honestly it's got to be between this award and I gotta say it'd be between the Sunday Night Football halftime thing because that was when the Chiefs were playing the Colts and this is a big Chiefs area yeah so when that happened like all the kids from the school all the kids from like other schools were tweeting about it they were messaging me and stuff like that it was just like I think the biggest thing is like all the like the relationships I've built through this award and through like the play is the most important aspect to me but definitely this award getting it is the most like recognition i got on campus from a lot of kids they're like oh like oh you won this award congrats type of thing and then we had our we actually had a uh, like a basketball halftime thing where they talked about it and they had the whole like gym rocking from just talking about it, so it was an amazing experience altogether. But you haven't you haven't seen or gotten the trophy itself yet. No, I I under the I know I think Atwell has it right. Yes. Yeah. So I, he said he's seen it. He says it's an awesome trophy. I have not personally okay. seen it yet. <laughs> okay. And I was like, I was sitting there talking with my athletic trainers this morning. I was like, this guy's had the trophy the whole time. And I haven't <laughs> seen it. Like I've been asking him about about it for weeks, and he is he's just like he's, he's acting like he hasn't seen it, hasn't known zip about it until like two days ago. And I was That's like, smart. That's like that. That's how you can tell somebody has done Christmas for a child before. <laughs> you're like, there's no toys in this house. Yeah. Absolutely, man. We, uh, we're going to let you see that trophy tonight, man. We're going to celebrate you. I, I cannot wait. Um, this is really fun. And, and like I said, again, congratulations. Thank you, guys. It's an awesome experience that you guys get to put together for us, uh, getting that representation for the offensive line that doesn't usually happen. So, Yes, sir. Ryan Nanny, we've crossed the Mississippi River and we've crossed state lines. Which, we, si- which side are we on now? We are now in Quincy, Illinois, in the beautiful Fairfield Inn with a lovely uh, Smoothie King view out the window here. Um, Ryan, I'm glad this is coming out after we leave because that is like so specific that somebody could find us and hurt us if they wanted to. I'm sure our audience in Quincy, Illinois is verbose in their uh, effusive in their praise of the podcast. Um, Ryan, the NCAA Transfer Waiver Working Group 
has proposed a change to the waiver criteria that would allow for first-time transfers to compete immediately in all sports, putting the Big Ten and ACC's favorite plan in front of the D1 Council for approval. According to the NCAA, the group's goal is to have the new criteria approved for transfers for the 2021 academic year aka this fall if everything breaks right um this stems from a friend of the program nicole auerbach did some cool reporting on this uh yesterday february 17th um it is now the 18th and it looks like the ncaa is kind of um at least open to relaxing or changing the rules welcome to the resistance Uh, more than anything what we talked about off air this means the ncaa like understands they fucked this up right it at let's be more charitable the ncaa does not want the headache of adjudicating who has a legitimate waiver claim for a transfer and who doesn't because like there is no way to win that there is no way to sort of say like yes here is the line of hardship of unfairness or whatever and like these kids are on one side these kids are on the other side like they were never going to win that battle in the court of public opinion so they did the smart thing for once and just said fine everybody gets candy the press release says the working group concept would change waiver criteria to allow approvals for first-time four-year transfers in all sports to compete immediately if they receive a transfer release from their previous school leave their previous school academically eligible, maintain their academic progress at the new school, leave under no disciplinary suspensions. And there's an addendum lower in the press release. Um, That is where this really gets dicey here. Group members think the waiver process should be limited to uh, truly extenuating and unique circumstances that threaten a student athlete's health and safety. So this really is... The waiver process is not necessarily broken, but it's playing out in a way we didn't anticipate. And we want to kind of leave the waiver process to truly be a waiver process and just kind of allow the floodgates to open. The other problem is like the NC, you know, we've talked so often about like how many transfer quarterbacks are in the playoff. Like the NCAA, I think, has had a hard time being like transferring is bad and you should only do it under like the blah, 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 blah. And like also, hey, come watch our college football playoff. It features all these quarterbacks not playing for the schools they originally committed to. What I'm interested in, if you set up this system that basically says the assumption is if your grades are good and if you're not in any trouble, you get a free transfer year. How does that work with schools now who say, like, if you're at Florida and you want to transfer, Florida says, cool, we will sign that as long as you don't transfer within the division or against uh, an opponent we're going to play in the next four years. Like, is that still cool? Or are schools going to be expected to say, no, player autonomy is a thing. If you have a kid who wants to go play for Kentucky, let him go play for Kentucky and don't get in his way. The, the, that is the thing that schools – the schools are going to want to retain transfer restrictions. Right. Again, transfer restrictions are ridiculous. Um, any college football coach right now could go to any other school. We just saw it happen as long as the money's right. Um, they can go within the division. They can go within their conference. It does not matter. There are no restrictions. For Florida, Florida paid Will Muschamp. To be Auburn's defensive coordinator. They were paying his bills while he did that. You love to see it. And so, yeah, that will be, that's what the school's gonna push back on. The school's gonna push back and say, we don't, and I guess no matter how this rule is written or, or passed, 
it still says receive a transfer release from their previous school. My question is, do schools in 2020 want the smoke of transfer restrictions? Right. Because it it seems that they haven't recently because it's the same, like Bill Snyder tried to block some kid a couple of years ago. Uh, Mike Gundy did it a few years ago. I think Georgia did it a few years ago. Mm-hmm. It becomes a thing where the school tries to put the restriction out. Then it gets out that the school tried to put the restriction out. Everybody freaks out and then they relent. So I, I guess it's going to be up to the schools now to say what it is they want to happen here or, or what it is that they care about. Um, you know, schools have shown that they won't block like a Tate Martell situation for a player who's not going to be on the team. Um, and who's not going to play for one of your opponents. Yes. But this also does let the Big Ten and the ACC ha- say, hey, we were out in front of this as arbiters of college sports. Mm-hmm. We are the moral authority, so to speak. But it's it's also hard to ignore that some schools in those conferences have been bitten by this. Like, I can think of multiple Virginia Tech attempted transfers who didn't get a waiver. And then you think about, like, yeah, Virginia Tech is probably a school that could have used a little bit of help through the waiver process and them not getting it. I'm sure they were pissed. Like, there was, you know, our colleague Alex Kirshner made this flow chart about, like, when whether or not you'll get your waiver approved. And it's not really a joke. Like, there is no sort of certain way to look at something and say, yes, that one's going to let you play next year. This one won't. And so, ultimately, I think it's cleaner and easier for everybody that the NCAA is at least leaning this direction. What happens to the lawyers? In the, what happens to the lawyers who have made a decent living or a decent carve-out for uh, helping players get the waivers? I'm confident... Savvy lawyers will find a way. How is like what's what's the way the NCAA screws this up here? Screws this one up specifically? Yeah. This on its face good rule that a lot of us have been pining for and is frankly a successor to immediate grad transfer. I think they might not. Like the the thing this actually makes me think of is way way back. This is even before if you can believe it. I was a cognizant <laughs> college football fan, but like freshmen initially weren't allowed to play college football. Like Yeah, they had to be on freshmen. Right. Like you had to you had to sit out. You could not play on the varsity. And eventually the NCAA just did away with that. And like, look, that's not a thing that necessarily is like hugely impacting rosters year to year, but most good teams have one freshman or a couple freshmen who like A are really good or B just have to play because of injury. And like that's just the thing that they did and has gone pretty well. And that's another example, I think, where they said, well, we're doing this to protect uh, academic integrity, blah, 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 blah. Now that they've done it, I don't think anybody looks back and says, Ugh, if only we restricted it and didn't let freshmen play anymore. <laughs> All right. Speaking of transfers and speaking of sitting out, um, okay, Joe Burrow's not going to sit Joe Burrow's not going to not play for the Bengals. I don't think we should actually entertain that. Uh basically you don't, you don't think he'll hold them to the fire. I do not think okay, so. Okay. Um Joe Burrow has this give me, week Give me a, yeah, sorry. Go ahead Joe, and give me the context. Joe Burrow this week was in Fort Worth uh receiving the Davey O'Brien award and and basically says he said and I quote I do have leverage when asked um about like the draft process because Cincinnati obviously is his presumed destination it's February 18th uh in the e- early evening when we're recording this we're a week away from the combine um uh the the quote is 
the Bengals have their process. I have my process. We haven't even gotten to the NFL Combine yet. There's a lot of things that can happen leading up to the draft and a lot of information gathered. In my opinion, it is much ado about nothing. Um, but it is... The, the noteworthiness here is that apparently Joe Burrow's like mom was caught off guard by these comments. Uh, Robin Burrow said, we have no idea where that comes from. It's a story out there that someone has created and doesn't have any substance from our perspective, at least. Anybody listening to this podcast maybe two weeks ago knows that sometimes uh, young men say something about where they're going to play football that their parents or grandparents uh, may not necessarily know. Young men can always surprise you. And then you throw agents into the mix. Too. And then you throw agents into the mix. <laughs> but I like I don't think what's Joe Burrow gonna do here? Honestly. Joe Burrow if Joe Burrow somehow convinces the Bengals not to take him. Right. Um Washington is at two, they probably will not take him. No. Depending on what Detroit does with Matt Stafford. Detroit in, could take him. In indications seem to be that Matt Stafford is staying in Detroit. Sure. I, I think there right now is there is some rumblings that they may get rid of him. Um, but the other thing is there are also rumblings that they've been shopping Darius Slay at cornerback, which right. means they're going to need a cornerback. Jeffrey Okuda is going to be right there at three. The Giants are not going to take him at four. Then we get to the Dolphins. Right. And then we get to the Chargers, who may or may not have Tom Brady, Tyrod Taylor. Then we get to the Panthers, who may or may not have Cam Newton. Sure. Like, the far- that's the interesting thing, is the farther down you go, it's not really about, like, well, where would he slip? Would they just take somebody else? It's more just, it, to me, it's more like, who would trade up? Right. Right. And because, like, the, there, are a couple, there are a couple examples you can use here from history. One, of course, is Eli Manning telling the Chargers. Oh, we'll, we'll get there we'll because get there. I'm very interested in how that we'll played get there, out. But Regale like, me. But like Bo Jackson, drafted first overall by the Tampa Bay Bucks, said, I will not play for you. The, the TLDR version is he was convinced they wrecked his baseball career and wrecked his eligibility uh, at Auburn. Like and just didn't play for a year. Like sat out of the NFL for a year. Went back into the draft and got picked in the seventh round by the Raiders. Now I don't think that's the path that Joe Burrow <laughs> should take. But like John Elway didn't want to play for the Col- like John Elway. Well, did John Elway said he was going to go play for the John Yankees? Elway said he would go play baseball instead of play for the Colts. And the Colts did not take him. And right? the Colts and the Colts, uh, I believe, traded traded that pick. If memory serves, uh, basketball. Kobe Bryant uh, told John Calipari not to take him mm-hmm. with the Nets, and Calipari took where they take Kelvin Kittles or something. Mm, yeah, it's maybe it was it was Horn, it was like a serviceable it was like a serviceable pro, serviceable pro that wasn't Kobe Bryant. Yeah, um, and so yeah, I am just interested in the. What do you think the leverage actually is in 2020's NFL for Joe Burrow? So the only the only way I see the leverage happening is if you can if your agent that is can go and find a successful trade partner cuz like yes the Bengals would really really like to have Joe Burrow. Does that mean that they will take him to the exclusion of any offer whatsoever? No. I think most organizations are smart enough to be like yeah, we'll listen to that. Like Joe Burrow's really good, and maybe he is a franchise changing quarterback. But you ain't number one in the draft order because the only you only need one piece. So like, if they can go out and find a Miami or somebody who is like, hey, we will give you three first rounders, two first rounders, and three second, whatever like the bounty is that you can get back, like. You know, the other example I think of here is you go back and you look at this. This also involved the Bengals, uh, I believe. All the picks that the Saints gave up 
for to, Ricky get, Williams. to get Ricky Williams. Yeah. yeah. And like you look back and, and like there is an opportunity there that I think I think a team like at least would entertain, especially if you think like Ugh, this is going to be rocky and miserable from like day one. Maybe you talk about it, but unless you have that other team that's willing to be like in this weird draft love triangle with you, you really like your leverage is pretty slim. I do think this is if anything else, I do think this could be a very clear message to the Bengals to say, hey, you guys better figure it out with A.J. Green. Right. Like you better figure it out. A.J. Green is uh, is a free agent uh, or will be a free agent when the new league year starts in a few weeks. Um, and it. Right now, the Bengals could let him let him go or not try to retain him or what have you. If I'm Joe Burrow, I'm like, look, you better figure it out with somebody for me to throw to. Now I've got a really good running back in Joe Mixon. Um, there are offensive pieces around him, particularly because Mixon catches the, the ball out of the backfield. There are there are pieces around him, I think. Um, I'm not sure what's happening with Tyler Eifert. But if the message is retain your parts so that I can come in here year one and we can do something in this division then I think that could be fun. Um, but I do not end up, I do not actually think Joe Burrow really and truly stiff Cincinnati. I, I don't know. I don't know. I just, I just don't really see it. I think it's, I mean, look, I think this is the kind of thing you can say at this point in the process before, like he said, before the combines even happen, like it's vague enough that you can sort of wipe it clean. I will say, if you if if you hear it a second time, you hear it a third time, then you start to approach like, yes. the point of no return. Now it's sort of like a, he he wasn't effusive in saying he wanted to go, so now it's like a, I mean we're talking about it, we're kicking it around in, in a purely there, hypothetical. There's also like the draft in some ways. Yes, it's like a talent acquisition process. It's also a marketing process. And you if you have the first pick. You want your fans to be fired up about who you take. Particularly this first pick with this guy. Everybody in Ohio, you know, conceivably a lot of them are Cavs fans. Right. A lot of them went through the LeBron things more than right, once. Right, Like this is uh, – the Bengals, I think, have a pretty – don't screw this up. The last thing you want is a sea of probably drunk – Bengals fans in Las Vegas booing because you took Joe Burrow who said he didn't want to play for you. Yeah. And then booing when Joe Burrow has the natural adjustment that comes with being a rookie quarterback in the NFL. Yeah. Like you you actively don't want that. If I'm Zach Taylor though, I'm like, look, man, give me the quarterback. Yeah. If I'm Zach Taylor, I'm like, I want the quarterback. I right. that's why I'm here. You guys, you know, gave me any doll and it didn't really work out. But I also I wanted to I wanted to go back to the Eli thing just because I'm fascinated yeah. that we the, the Manning family, I think, is interesting in this respect because Archie told a team to fuck off. Right. Eli did it too. Right. Now they've got this nephew that in four or five years you're going to hear about Arch. as the anointed one, Arch. Arch. But let, I want to talk about Eli because I, it's something that I don't really remember yeah. um, happening. But obviously Eli's retired now. And it's kind of like when we look back on his career, it's kind of funny because it worked out for both parties involved. Right. So I think part of why, what I remember, and I was still like, this was what, 99? No, it was later than that, right? Was it later than that? Am I just incredible? Because I remember Eli Manning a little bit oh, of this is, Sorry, 2004. Yeah. It's 2004. Right. So yeah, I am old enough to actually remember this in some detail. I apologize. Um, it felt actually not that hostile. I think mm. in part because everybody was pretty upfront. Like there wasn't this sort of like, well, I'm kind of, it was just sort of like, nope, don't want to play for you. Just doesn't want to happen. And because the, in that draft in particular, 
the Chargers, I think, knew, like, okay, yeah, we'd like to have Eli Manning. He's the number one pick for a reason. But there's a very good quarterback. We, there, there are several very good quarterbacks. Roethlisberger so, was also in that draft. Right, Obviously, exactly. Philip Rivers. So, like, and J.P. Lossman. Right. So, the, so I think the question here is, like, okay, if you're the Bengals – and you cannot, and and you're just he he's not playing for you. Joe Burrow is not playing for you. Are you happy if you can get to a position and take Tua? Like, is that a is that a position where you can say okay? Because at the end of at the end of that trade, the Chargers could go back to their fans and say, look, we got a good quarterback, and we ended up getting Sean Merriman, and we ended up getting I think Nate Canning with one with of the those picks. Things. Yeah, so like. You could make a case that this was still good for our team. We did not get screwed or fleeced or, you know, we did, we didn't bust out. So the alternative yeah. the alternative for the uh for the Bengals is what? The, the alternative for the Bengals is somebody gives you a god's sweetheart deal. Hopefully right. the right. Dolphins Sure, whoever it is. Whoever it really is. doesn't matter. As long as like you're getting the package value of picks that you can justify passing up on maybe the best quarterback you're going to have the chance to take at the first. Because that's the other thing is it's not just like it's the first pick. It's yeah. the one where you control you have all the control in the yeah. world and it's very I think it's very hard for teams to accept that like maybe that's not true. This uh the the draft I I love reading back on first rounds of the draft <laughs> chargers chargers eli manning obviously we know how that goes uh oakland raiders robert gallery yes iowa yes arizona cardinals larry fitzgerald uh the giants philip rivers robert gallery was like such a huge pick i remember that yes i remember that that i do remember as like oh the raiders took like a this foundational changing yes 100%, 100%. left tackle um uh washington takes sean taylor Cleveland, uh, Kellen Winslow, Detroit takes Roy Williams, Atlanta Falcons, D'Angelo Hall, my dearly beloved Jacksonville Jaguars take Reggie Williams, uh, Houston, Dante Robinson, and then Pittsburgh takes Ben Roethlisberger right. at 11, and that kind of you know finishes out that cycle of those three how much de- how many How many defensive players are there in that list you just, because it- There is one, two. Two. Sean Taylor. Three, three. Sean Taylor. Sean Taylor, D'Angelo Hall, and Dante Hall. Robinson. That's like that feels very weird now. To yeah, be like we had a top ten, we had ten draft picks, and only three of them were defensive players. There, Jonathan Vilma gets taken next at twelve. Yeah, by the and Jets. then there's a tackle, two ends. Right, Will Forks in here, but like there's a bunch of wide receivers. There's a bunch of wide receivers. And, yeah, bunch of running backs. Yeah, it, it is funny to see that shake out. So there's Joe Burrow's. Um, there's Joe Burrow's leverage. Let's have fun with that over the next two months of the draft industrial complex. All right. As PAPN, uh, at N. Schlutz, I am probably butchering that, um, has a question. Can I morally continue to root for the Razorbacks with Kendall Bryles on staff? <sighs> That's, th- that is like a tough question. And I, I would like to, without backpatting too much, it's good that you're asking that. Yeah. It's good that you are wondering that. I think ultimately the answer is yes, but. Mm-hmm. Like, yes, but only if you are sort of asking the right questions and not just sort of being out there defending your team. Because I think ultimately what we look at from a fan perspective, because fans are not the people who control university policy or responses to lawsuits or responses to uh, allegations of sexual assault. 
what fans can control is their public reaction to defend their school or not. And I think what your obligation is as a fan and what our obligations as fans are is to not do the knee-jerk thing where somebody says something, Arkansas may have screwed something up, and you're out there on the front lines of Twitter defending the honor of this institution that I presume does not pay you a dime. Like <laughs> As long as you're not that person and you are thoughtful about holding the power structures at the school you root for accountable for the choices they make, I think you can, I think you can be more okay with it. I think that also means that you have the right to sort of like wherever possible sort of ask how this happened. Like how how does Kendall Bryles get this job? How, what kind of vetting process goes on? That's not a how thing is, a fan can necessarily do easily, but like it's a, it's an important conversation I think to have with other people who you know who root for Arkansas. Kendall Bryles is interesting in the I think Art Bryles has become such the boogeyman. He is the boogeyman. He's the that we take center. Yeah, he it. is yeah. the boogeyman that we have taken from the Baylor scandal. The Baylor scandal was now what four years ago? That five sounds years? about right. Yeah. And so now we are removed enough from it. And Baylor, as a football program, is now two coaches away from three coaches if you count Jim Grove, but three coaches away from it. That we, I'm not saying we let Baylor off the hook here, but the the takeaway from the Baylor scandal, I think, centers so clearly around Art Browse, primarily because of what Art Browse was to that program, what college football coaches are to their program um, as the sun, moon, and stars in a way that they aren't really in other sports, probably besides college basketball. Um, and Kendall Bryles skated. Kendall Bryles' Compar- reputation, comparatively, comparatively, has skated, has has has. And Kendall Bryles was not a saint after Art like got suspended. He was wearing like this the Coach Art Bryles stuff right. on his hands and all that sort of stuff. Um, it it is it is interesting when we think when we talk about how we talk about Baylor and and the fallout of it. How Kendall Bryles has this is Kendall Bryles's third job. FAU FSU here. Yeah, this will be okay. Kendall Bryles's third job post Baylor. Right. And it's it's just the thing that I think is interesting in part of the fallout that we can kind of have this conversation. And look, I, I'm not going to try to legislate somebody's fandom here. Um, you know, if we love a sport that is quite problematic for a lot of reasons. It's I don't know what to do about the fact that Kendall Bryles has had three stops since he left Baylor. The way Baylor handled that investigation with the oral report yes. and the n- not really disclosing much of anything as much as they could, it's still very hard to tell, like, this is exactly – we only have sort of like – Who did we, – we do not really know who did or who didn't do Correct. what outside of our brows. And and in some ways, the, pro- the, the responsibility since then, I would argue – is not even entirely on Kendall Bryles. It's on the institutions that are never held to task. Like, nobody went to FAU and was like, stand accountable for your the decision you've made. Didn't happen at FSU. Didn't hap- Hasn't happened at Arkansas so far that I'm aware of. It's possible that there's something I haven't. And so ultimately, like... Arkansas is just as wrong as those in, just is has failed in the same way that those other institutions have. Right. There is something of uh, 
there is something to the systemic nature of how coaches churn. Right. That lets this kind of Can I can I throw like a real weird curveball at you? Please do. Here? The example that has stuck with me in this coaching cycle is at LSU with Bo Pelini. Yeah. Bo Pelini went like to to paraphrase it somewhat, went to great lengths to bring one of the two Steubenville rapists onto the Youngstown State team. He was at this was this was a player who um, had gone to a different college after high school and had come to Youngstown State, but had not transferred as a football player. And he like went and sought him out and tried to get him on the team. And you know, it was a thing on on the internet for like the month or two that it was in the news. But when Bo Pelini got hot, got the LSU defensive coordinator job, nobody, including like thoughtful members of media Twitter, nobody was out here saying, okay, well, do we have any questions now that Bo Pelini is back in the national spotlight about like that decision, how it went, what he learned from it? Like it's not even a topic of conversation. And I think that ultimately is like, I would I would actually much rather Arkansas come out and say we hired Kendall Bryles because he has taken these steps to be more responsible with the student population. We think he can be an asset to helping us thoughtfully and meaningfully deal with sexual assault on campus because of X, Y, and Z. I would I would rather hear that. Like that at least would be engaging with the topic in a meaningful way. And instead, we just sort of like refer to it obtusely um, on social media or on websites or whatever, and we don't really get into it in any way whatsoever. You and and other people can talk like thoughtfully and eloquently and with knowledge about like Kendall Bryles offensive play caller because there is a record there is like you're going to get a lot of screens baby sure like you can you can do that it is wild to the point of irresponsibility that we cannot do that like we cannot even do sub point 1 on Kendall Bryles um statutory responder yeah. statutory reporter yeah. like that i think ultimately is what goes to this question this this question is that it's we don't really and correct me if, if i'm going if i'm take extrapolating the point too far right. but we don't really know what kendall browse did or didn't do is that where we're going it's there? not even that it's that we don't know like has anything changed since then yes like has Kendall learned? Like has Kendall meaningfully here's, here's learned good, something? Here's a good counterexample: Mike Riley okay. at Oregon State was was had it had a situation where he um, basically under underplayed uh, a sexual assault involving um, Brenda Tracy. Yes, like that's where Brenda Tracy's that that's where her sort of work. Began. The I guess. Or, that's yeah. sort of the like sad and traumatic origin Genesis, story. Yeah. Exactly. But since then, working with people like Brenda Tracy, Mike Riley has sort of gone out and said, like, this is like how I have tried to do better. This is what I try to tell this the kids that I work with now. There hasn't been shit about that from Kendall Bryles. So it's just it's impossible to give him or the schools that he's worked for benefit of the doubt that is completely unearned. And so like I, I guess where I am way circling around to is you should not necessarily feel that Arkansas is the worst actor of all of them. You should do your best to hold yourself 
and others around you accountable for at least thoughtfully engaging with this when and where you can. Yeah. And I think there are legitimate conversations in the Arkansas college football in general, but as an Arkansas fan, Arkansas fan base, there are and should be considerable conversations about what it is we are talking about when we talk about Arkansas's coaching staff, Kendall Bryles mm-hmm. and, and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And yeah, that's that. Uh, if celebrity hot tub had the power to do so, what's one CFB rivalry he'd stop playing and one he'd start back up that comes from at name brand cereal. Huh? Do you want me to, uh, how do you want me to treat conferences in this? Like, do you want me to fuck with conference games? I would like, yeah, why not? Wow. Okay. Um, I want Florida state Miami to take a break, take a break. Uh, yeah. And we this, were, so we were talking yeah. about Miami. We were talking about Miami in the car right over. I want Florida State Miami to take a break, not because it can't be a compelling football game and not because I'm saying anything about the state of either program, but because I think there are some rivalries that if you take a little break and sort of let the pressure, the pressure cooker build up a little bit, I think that will make for something more interesting. Florida State Miami right now has lost its luster so badly. And granted, it was a luster. Florida that was, State fans would disagree. Well, I mean, I mean <laughs> fair, but it was a luster that was so high at one point. Yeah. And I think if we said, you know what, we're just going to give it like three years off and we know it's coming back and we know when we're coming back to it. Like, I think that would be a good way to inject a little more gravitas and emotion into the thing. Remember what Florida State, I think people, people need to remember what Florida State and Miami's supposed to be. It's supposed to be number two versus number five and you trade which one is which. Exactly. Florida State and Miami is supposed to be the ACC's marquee game bar none. It is why the ACC's divisions are aligned the way that they are. It is why Miami is in this conference. The league literally said we want to create a league that has that football rivalry as the center. As the as the gravitational pull. And 15 years have elapsed and we understand what Clemson is now. And Florida State Clemson was the sun, moon, and stars for a little bit. Right. But Florida State Miami has, I would argue, what what year did Miami join the ACC? 2004? That's, uh, yeah, right around 2004 or 2005. Yeah. Miami joins the ACC. Yeah. I would argue... It has never in 15 years actually lived up to the hype by the time you got to the end of the season. Right. Because Miami had a few years uh, in like like Jameis Winston era Florida State Miami rivalry where Miami was like undefeated. Hot out the gate. Yeah. Yeah. Undefeated, 6 and 0, went to Tallahassee. Course. Well, that was the thing. They, they'd lose to Florida State and then, the and then they fall apart. Exactly. Right. There was the year that they beat Florida State barely mm-hmm. in Miami Rick's first year that was the good year where they were whatever they were in the ACC championship game whatever but the game has never lived up to the luster I think that's a funny one what are you bringing back I mean West Virginia Pitt is a really obvious one that like would be very dear to my heart and I know that game is sort of coming back at least in the limited capacity um I like that Nebraska Oklahoma granted it's not going to be for a while but I'm glad that it's coming back and I would actually like to see, this is sort of a a more general answer. I really like, in the same way, maybe this is a good way to trade it. I liked the West Coast Miami games. Like, I liked when Miami was playing like Washington. Yes, or when they were playing like UCLA. Like, I I still vividly remember Cade Cade McNown in UCLA playing a, playing 
just one of the worst games they've ever played <laughs> against a good Miami team. And uh, like, there was something about those games that I think fits. So I don't know, like give me shoot, give me a UCLA Miami rivalry. Like, yeah. let's just do it. Let's just do like, and we can call it like, we're in the nineties. Great. Like that'll be the name of the rivalry. I do think like my answer to this question is always so basic and mm-hmm. I don't care. It is still Texas and Texas and Texas A&M. Yeah. Primarily because of what the game could be in the next two to three years. Okay. Because of because of what Jimbo Fisher is being paid, because of what because of the reckoning that Tom Herman may run into if he doesn't figure it out in another year or two, I would love for the game to again be able to, particularly because they're not in the same league, I would love for the game to come and be this build to the end of the season and then be able to topple these two teams' seasons and ergo off-seasons in a way that it hasn't because we've taken the time off and we've understand we've understood that the two teams have grown apart and whatever, and Texas A&M has gone on to greener pastures, so they say, with all this money and all this kind of stuff. I just think the game is now even funnier than it was before. Um, but it's also funny the way it ended. Yeah, it is. It's also very funny it the is. way it ended, if that is the way it will end for all time. Yeah. Um, yeah, whatever. Uh, I will skip to our last here, uh, just because I, I think it's just interesting to kind of talk to our audience and level with them. Um, at JMW918 asks, always been curious, do y'all work seven days a week during college football season? If not, when is your Saturday? Always been curious, do y'all work... Uh, oh, sorry, that's a double copy and paste. The question is, is what's our work schedule? So this, in my experience... This question varies wildly depending on A, how old you are, and B, what your relationship status is. Yes, slash how many children you have, apparently. So the older you are and the more you are in like committed relationships, being married, having children, whatever, I think it resembles more of like, I don't know, let's call it like a five and a half, maybe six day work week, depending, um, where you sort of pick your spots you try to take some days off in the middle of the week yeah. when you can sort of say like, this is when things will be lighter. But like, that's the ass. I think that's the aspiration. And the yeah. thing I try to do and Richard can call me out on it or not <laughs> is sort of like, try to say, no, this is a job. We should work five days a week, take days off in the middle of the week, take vacation time in, in the middle of the season. If you want, like I firmly believe that there is no reason why, because you cover college football, you have to be plugged into it all of the time. Watch every game possible. Like I don't think that actually leads, makes you smarter, more thoughtful. I think people. I think people like to say that they do that. Sure, um, and, and some. I genuinely believe there are some people in college football media who do like to do that. And if that's your thing, that's your thing, and that's cool. But Jason like, has a joke about Maction that we all say we watch Maction, <laughs> and no one actually watches Maction. Um, I just think it's funny. I so for my, I hate, I hate working on Fridays. Mm-hmm. I hate it with a passion during the season. During the all season, I don't love it that much either. But <laughs> um, I, I do not mind kind of selling my whole Saturday. That's fine. That's the job. Um, but I would rather not work Friday. I try to orient my schedule where it's um, Saturday is in essence the beginning of my week, so to speak. It's your Monday. It's my Monday, and and it's a long ass Monday. Yeah, and Sunday mornings 
I wake up, I wake up at like seven in the morning on Sunday mornings and prep. Um, I'll, I'll catch up on the Hawaii game or the late night Pac-12 after dark game that I checked out at a halftime or whatever. Um, and I, I wake up on Sunday and prep all that stuff. I'm not the only college football podcaster that does that. If you listen to the solid verbal, you would be surprised at what time Dan Rubenstein goes to bed. Um, and, and then by, I also like to have my work kind of done by Sunday afternoon because I do like to watch the Jags game. I do like to watch the NFL. I have in the last, it's funny, I have since becoming a more prominent member in the college football media, started to love the NFL in a way that I really never have. Well, also the Jags were good for a season. Also the Jags and got good that season. back on the bandwagon. Um, and look where it got me now, three years later. Jesus. Um, two years later. And so now I do like to watch the NFL. I do like to take the back half of my Sundays to watch the NFL with my friends, you know, go to a bar or what have you. And then Monday through Thursday-ish work as usual. Um, There's also this, like, the, the weird thing about being in, this is true, I think, about anybody who works in sports is there's this weird, like, am I working or not? Yes, like, yeah. If there's a Thursday night game and Twitter's like, hey, this doesn't happen that much anymore, but if there's, like, a Saturday noon game that yeah. I wasn't planning on working and whatever, and somebody's like, hey, you got to turn this game, Army is, like, taking it to Michigan. Yeah. And I turn it on. And I'm just, like, I'm not writing anything for it. I'm just sort of watching it. Like, am I working or not? And I honestly don't know the answer yeah. sometimes. Like, because we cover a thing that we love and because we would – I don't think we would spend Saturdays the exact way we spend them now, starting at the hours we do and ending at the hours that we do. But it's not like – I don't think any of us are in this and are like, I watch college football because it's my job. Yeah, yeah, I think yeah. we watch college football and, and it's, it's our, our job. job. Yeah. And so it can be kind of hard to tell, like Saturdays especially. I, I What I try to do in that case is sort of like self-triage. And if it's like it's the primetime game – and like the Ohio State uh, Nebraska game this year, yeah, I just, I just bailed. Yeah, because bail like, what am I going to see in the second half that like I have to do? I am not the kind of person who can be like, oh, this is what I saw in this. Like, I know I'm not that person, so I would rather go spend that hour like feeding my kid dinner, yeah, or spending some time with my wife and pretending like I like am a balanced person. Yeah, I would just like to say, uh, in short, God bless you. And hug your local condensed game YouTuber. Oh, yeah. The moment you see them. The kindest people in the world.